I'm curious if any of you have ever had the opportunity to meet somebody who was famous. I'm sure if you did, it, it stood out. Uh, for me, uh, when I was in college, I was a junior high pastor at a church, and uh, one of the students was named Brett DiBiase, and he asked me if I'd be willing to, to come over and tutor him in math. He was having some trouble, so him and his friend said, hey, would, y'all be, would you be willing to come over and just give us a little bit of help with our homework? And I said, yeah, that'd be, that'd be fine. So <clears throat> went over to his house. It was a big house, and it had a large door, and uh, I knocked on it, <clears throat> and as soon as somebody came and answered, um, there was this massive human being standing before me. And uh, the door was large. It, it was bigger than normal, but he made it look smaller than normal. In fact, it looked almost like there was like this giant troll reaching out of a hobbit hole that was too small for him to, to shake not just my hand, but like my whole body. And uh, it was kind of like the scene of the dog from the Sandlot, right? Everything just seemed bigger. And uh, he, he introduced himself as Ted, and I was staring at him. I said, wait a minute, he looks familiar. I was a huge wrestling fan. And I had watched, I'd grown up watching like Sting, he was my favorite, and uh, he, he did like the Stinger Splash, and uh, Ted DiBiase uh, was the billion, dollar, the million dollar man. But I didn't know that uh, his name was Ted DiBiase because I only know him as a million dollar man. And so uh, I looked at him, I said, man, this guy looks famous. And so uh, Brett came and got me, and I said, man, did you know your dad looks like that famous wrestler? And he said, he is that famous wrestler. I said, you've got to be kidding me. And his friend's like, yeah, like just last week, tell him what happened. Apparently, Sting came over to hang out, did the Stinger splash on him on his bed and broke it. And I'm like sitting there like major jealous. I'm like, what kind of benefits do you get to having the million dollar man be your dad? Well, when we're looking at Romans chapter four, what we find is, is that we all have a spiritual father in Abraham if we have his faith. And the interesting thing about Brett was he didn't really look like his dad. You know, he was in junior high. He didn't look like his dad who was massive. He wasn't as big. He didn't have his dad's beard. Like I just didn't connect the dots. But when it comes to Abraham, we know that Jews kind of understood that they were connected to their father Abraham genetically. They, they had the, the line that they could trace all the way back to physical Abraham and all the promises that were made to Abraham. And they thought that that physical descent meant that they automatically were heirs to all the promises made to him. Well, Paul, you'll remember in Romans 4, is, is spending time thinking about Father Abraham and who are those who are related to him and receiving the promises that were promised to him. He quoted Genesis 15, 6 as kind of his ground text where he's talking about the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the believer. And he said, look, justification by faith alone, this was in the Old Testament as well. You remember Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness too. Well, in verses 9 to 25 that we find ourselves at this morning, Paul is going to refer to Abraham five times his father. And that repetition tells us that he wants us to really be thinking about the nature of the fatherhood of Abraham as it relates to his children. And he's going to be arguing that when it comes to having Abraham as a father, it's more important that we have his spiritual DNA than his physical DNA. We, we will see that our relationship is sown in our faith, not in our face, so to speak. 
Now, Paul says more, the more accurate paternity test to discover if Abraham is your father is more about your faith than your biology. Now, it's about spiritual realities more than physical. And let's not forget that the true sons of Abraham become heirs of the promises of God to Abraham and his people. So it's important that you know who your daddy is. And if it's Abraham, then you've got a lot coming to you and a lot that is yours in Christ. Well, this is our big idea. If you're taking notes, it's this. It's that faith in Christ makes us heirs of the world with Abraham. Faith in Christ means that we become heirs of the world with Abraham. Uh, We're going to see that in our text this morning. Well, first, notice in verses 9 to 12, we find that Father Abraham was counted righteous before circumcision. Father Abraham was counted righteous before circumcision. Now, Paul is transitioning with a question about this blessing. You'll notice in verse 9, and you might say, well, what is that blessing? Uh, That blessing is justification by faith alone. He's still talking about it. And he asked this question in verse 9. If this blessing then is only for the circumcised, is it only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Now here's what's happening if you're tracking along and you're trying to figure out what's going on in the text. Uh, Paul here, he has just gotten through talking about the horizontal nature of faith and the way that it changes your status with God. It makes you right with God. It brings you peace with God. You're in right standing based on your faith with with God. But in these verses that we're looking at this morning, we find that now he's going to talk about the the horizontal implications. Who who are the people of God? Who are the children of God? And he wants to, to look at this in light of the nature of justification by faith alone. And he pulls up a very interesting chronological reality. Uh, He is tracing through the life of Abraham, and he says, I want you to notice that there is a thing that happens before another thing. And we find this in verses 9 to 25. Verses 9 to 25, he shows us what what he's getting at. Now, notice what he says. Verses 10 to 12, he says this. He says, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who were not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before He was circumcised. Now, he's making a number of points here. Uh, For one, he is pointing out that Abraham was justified by faith in Genesis 15, which comes before he was circumcised in Genesis 17. Now, that means that you can be right with God without circumcision because Abraham was. He was already said to be made righteous and right with God before he was circumcised. And you'll notice that Paul is here talking about circumcision as a sign and a seal. I think those are really speaking of the same kind of reality. 
And they're pointing to the reality that the righteousness of God has already been imputed or credited to the account of Abraham based on his faith. Now, we also see that God planned for Abraham to be justified by faith prior to circumcision on purpose. In other words, this chronology that we see between Genesis 15 and 17 isn't just accidental. Abraham understands this as part of the purposes of God, the way that it is unfolding. Not just what unfolds, but how it unfolds and even the order of it unfolding. So God intended from the beginning, according to Paul, to make Abraham the father of all who believe without circumcision, speaking of the the Gentiles in verse 11. He says, "I, I want all of those who are without circumcision to be part of the people of God. Verse 11. And then he also says, and not just them, but also to make him the father of those who are not merely circumcised in verse 12, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. I I take that to mean that Jews and Gentiles alike truly have Abraham as their father by sharing his faith, not his DNA or his circumcision. Now that means that anyone can get in on this deal that we call grace. That's what Paul is signaling. This gospel, and you'll remember this is a missionary letter, is for the nations. By faith, we become part of God's people. And in that, we receive the faith family of God. Now, maybe some of you feel like your whole physical family is filled with crazy cousin Eddie's. You know what I'm talking about from like National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation? Like nobody acts right. If you're like me, sometimes you feel like you are the crazy cousin Eddie of the family. Maybe you feel like you don't have a family. God has not given you the family that you want, that you deserve. Maybe you feel like your family doesn't meet your expectations. You have longings for a more meaningful kind of family than anything that you find on this earth, let me tell you, that's a, that's a true thing. There's no family on this earth that meets the longings of your heart because we were made for heaven. We were made for God and his family. We were made for the faith family of Abraham. And that's why we understand local churches as types of families, families that are going home to meet with a great family reunion forever with Christ. Now, don't miss this. Having Abraham as your father, if he is the one that your faith looks like, it comes not only with forgiveness of sins, like we saw back in verses 7 to 8. It doesn't only mean that you are imputed with the very righteousness of Jesus that we saw back in verses 1 to 6, but we also find in our text here today that it comes with a future inheritance. There is much that is yet to come, because notice Second, God promised Abraham that he and his offspring would be heirs of the world. Seems like the kind of thing you just need to slow down to say, right? Abraham is going to be an heir of the world. That's a big promise. But don't miss what Abraham is, is doing when he puts his faith in God. Abraham is not simply believing in miracles when he has faith. That's not what the scriptures are teaching us, that there was just this kind of 
vague trust in God. No, no. He didn't just trust that everything was going to work out for him. He, he, he did believe that, but there was something more to the nature of his faith. His faith was not blind. He's actually, if we look at the nature of the faith of Abraham, it is anchored securely throughout the text of his life. It is anchored in the clear and sure promise of God that he was going to give him an offspring and that to him and his offspring, they would become heirs of the world. That was what he was holding on to throughout his whole life. See, Paul says Abraham placed his faith in a specific promise of God made to him and his offspring specifically. He uses this word promise in verses 13 to the rest of the chapter five times. Again, wanting us to see not just that Abraham is important, but the promise to Abraham is important. And look what he says in verse 13 about this promise. He says, for the the promise to Abraham and his offspring, that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. See, God promised Abraham that he and his offspring, that they would be heirs of the world. There's no verse that matches exactly this promise word for word, but it sums up the promises that God made to Abraham throughout. If you want to look at some of these, you'll remember that God promised Abraham many descendants in Genesis 12, 2, and that all nations would be blessed through him in Genesis 12, 3, that his offspring would possess the gate of his enemies in Genesis twenty two seventeen, And then later, as he's talking to and through David, David is the one through whom he says the promises of Abraham are going to be filled through his seed, through his offspring that's going to come through him. And we find that one of his sons would rule over the entire earth in Psalm 2, 8. And then in Psalm 72, 8, we find that the reign of this son would be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. And then we are told in Isaiah 54, 2 to 3, that this son would have a universal reign. I I take it that Paul is, with this short phrase, summarizing the, the great and awesome promises that were made to Abraham throughout his life, that God promised that he and his offspring would be heirs of the world through the righteousness of faith, not the law. And Abraham was also justified by faith 430 years before the law came. He explains in verse 14, if you look there again, he says, for it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith. If it is adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Now, there's a lot going on in this verse, but I think the main point's clear. Uh, Just to help you get to it, uh, that word for adherence, it's really translating a a preposition uh, that just means out of or from. And so I think what he's saying is, is that, you know, if, if we understand that being an heir of Abraham comes from being connected to the law, being a Jew, then what that does is, is that really, it it in effect makes faith null and the promise void. So Paul seems to be comparing Jews seeking to become heirs of the promises through works of the law with those who are pursuing it through 
faith. If you look at verse 15, you'll notice that he begins to kind of unwind this a little bit more. He explains the law saying this, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And we know that this is not saying that the law brought wrath and that was its purpose. As though the law is a a bad thing. We also know that this isn't intending, I don't believe, to say that those who do not have the law cannot sin. And we saw that in Romans 1. Like, you, you cannot have the law and still be a sinner in need of grace. Romans 1, 21 to 23 showed that every human failed to give God the glory that was due his name and deserved the wrath of God. So please just hear this. Uh, I think this is important. Uh, you might be young in your faith and think to yourself, you know, I thought about reading the Bible, but I think that if I read the Bible, then I'll become more culpable for what's in it. So I feel a little bit better not reading it and not feeling as guilty about what it says. I think that Paul would say, no, that's, that's not the nature of God's revelation to us. We ought to want to know the Word of God, and we ought to know that what the Word of God says for us is best for us if we have the Spirit of Christ living in us. So ignoring God's Word, it doesn't make you less culpable for not glorifying God in the way that He has created you to. But Paul here, I think, is showing something that's nuanced. You'll notice that he uses a specific word for sin here, which is transgression. A word that specifically means to disobey a law that a person has been directly commanded to keep. So in this context, what we find is, is that every transgression is a sin, but not every sin is necessarily a transgression. Does that, does that make sense? Specific kind of sin. And I think Augustine actually made this pretty clear. He said this about these verses. He said, Paul said this about the law bringing God's wrath because God's wrath is more severe towards a transgressor who knows sin by the law and still commits it. See, the law did not bring wrath because it was bad, but because we are. It it revealed that to be right with God, it would require an alien righteousness outside of ourselves to be made right with God. Now pay close attention to Paul's point in verse 16. He's continuing to ratchet this up. This is what he says. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And what is that it in verse 16? That is why it depends on faith. He's speaking still of the promised inheritance. And I hope that when you, you hear that, the promised inheritance, and if you're understanding what faith means for your relationship to that inheritance, that your eyes get wide and your ears open up because you want to hear, well, okay, what does this have to do with me? Well, what we find is, is that he is talking still about this promised inheritance to Abraham and his offspring, and he says, the law should highlight our neediness before God for a way to be made right with him and become a child of Abraham by faith and not by works, because if it's by works, who shall stand? So God's purpose in verse 16 is twofold. First, that the promise would be received through grace and not through works. And we've seen Paul hit this again 
and again. He wants us to understand that being made right with God is completely something that is alien to you, that is done for you from outside of you. It is a goodness of God that comes to you in which you have no room to boast. And second, by extension, that all of Abraham's offspring, all of Abraham's offspring would be guaranteed this inheritance. Now let me just ask you this morning, who are Abraham's offspring? Who are those who are promised that they will be heirs of the world? Well, he lists two groups, right? I mean, he lists those who are the adherents or those who are of the law, from the law, out of the law, speaking of Jews, and the one who shares the faith of Abraham. Now, this isn't describing two different ways to be made right with God, two ways of salvation. Paul's describing Jews who possess the law and put their faith in Jesus and Gentiles who share the faith of Abraham alone. Now, speaking to a church, you'll remember in context where you have Jews and Gentiles and there's some friction in that relationship, he speaks into that tension about the nature of what has happened in the gospel. He says, your family You are part of the family of God. Paul says God's original purpose was always that Abraham would be the father of us all. Do you you hear those words? Of us all. Not just Jew, not just Gentile, not just the poor, not just the rich, not just the men, not just the women, but of us all. Now we learn a few things here about Abraham's faith that we need to highlight. We learn, for one, that there's nothing more humbling than seeing yourself as a sinner before a righteous God and knowing that I can't do anything to save myself. Now, I'll say this, that one of the main impediments that I often find when I'm sharing the gospel with people is that they they don't want to come to Christ and confess that they don't have anything good to bring to the deal. It, It might be their own sense of a superior morality to God. Like, hey, you know, I would love to put my faith in you, but you you speak in certain ways about sexuality as though you're like sovereign over that stuff. I think I'm wiser than you. I believe I have more to bring to the table than like what you're calling for. Or it could be that you think I'm not that bad, God. Like I'm not ready to come to the point where I say that I need complete and total grace if I'm going to be saved. I think I need a little bit of grace for a pretty good person. And I think, man, God, if we teamed up, the things that we could do together. That's not faith according to the Bible. You know, my only hope is that God would give me grace instead of the wages I deserve for my sin. John Calvin, he famously described faith saying this, faith is like an empty, open hand stretched out towards God 
with nothing to offer and to everything to receive. Have you reached out to God in that way? Do you, do you day by day continue in Christ to reach out to God with that open hand in prayer as you're reading the scriptures, as you're seeking his face, as you're coming to church? Are you coming open-handed and grateful? Or are you coming with expectations? Are you coming with things that God has not promised you but you think he should and you didn't make good on? And you're sad and you're sorrowful because you've got too much in your hands when you come before God. We come empty-handed before him. Good friend, self-righteousness is not trying. It's, it, it's an attempt to try to smuggle in some of your efforts to justify you rather than putting all those down so that you might receive God's grace and God's grace alone. One of the hardest parts of Christianity one of the greatest impediments to spiritual growth is not that you have too much to bring to God, but that you try to smuggle too much in and you can't see God over it. But also, did you catch that Jew and Gentile alike, what he says about those who come empty-handed? Paul says, Jew or Gentile alike, they become what? heirs of the promises of God. Like, I don't know what's in your hand when you're coming to God, but it's not that. That's better. Christ is the true offspring of Abraham, and all who put their faith in him, they become offspring of Abraham. And if you were a child of Abraham, what that means is, is that you're an heir of the promises that God made to Abraham. Father Abraham, all that was promised to him is ours in Christ. I mean, Paul understands that the promises to Abraham are already being experienced in this local church that he's speaking to. Do you see? God's already making good. We right now are a church full of different people from different nationalities gathered together to worship, and we might not have like checked this box when we showed up, but by the way, we're reflecting the fact that God is making good on his promises to Abraham. God is doing it to Gentiles like you and me. And if you're, if you're of Jewish descent, even you get in on this deal, Right? Some people believe that, some believe some promises, like the land, are just for physical Israel. But we'll, we'll get to that in the future, for now. Notice, finally, that we also see that all of us become true heirs of Abraham. A Christian brother and sister, what that means is, you are an heir of the world. What does that mean? I'm not sure I know. I'm not sure I know like the, the beauties and the glories that await us. I'm not sure that my fallen mind, which is still, uh, though being saved and, and sanctified by grace, is really ready for all that God has prepared for his people. But we are heirs of the world. In fact, in 2 Timothy 2.12, uh, Paul tells Timothy, if we endure, we also will reign with him. I mean, there's a future-oriented nature to the faith that we call hope. And that future-oriented nature of faith, that is the anchor of our souls. It's the anchors of our lives. It's the anchor that we pull ourselves up out of bed in the morning with. For the Christian, those promises, they are reality-shaping. By faith, we are made right with God and receive a future inheritance. 
we shall reign with him. So for the Christian, this life, it's kind of like a journey to receive the, the rest of a ridiculous fortune that's hard to make sense of. That's what we're doing in Christ. We are trusting him. Our eyes, they might tell us that, man, we're, we're poor. We've got bills we can't pay. We've got kids that need braces. Uh, we can't make it to school on time. My job's not doing great. And yet, and yet, in the midst of all of that, I know that my future is secure. I, I don't know what's coming tomorrow, but I know that what's coming in the end. So keeping our eyes on the prize, it will minister to the sorrows of this life. You know, there are things that this life is going to bring you. You might have to bury a spouse or a child. And you might, in the midst of that, be terrified, thinking, what is going to happen to my faith in that moment? What's going to happen? Is my faith going to endure? Well, let me tell you this. We have a God who endures beyond our ability to hold on. God keeps us. The future is bright. We trust him when we can't trust what our physical eyes are looking at. John Newton tells a story that he illustrates this reality, and I find it so helpful. He, he says this. He says, suppose a man was going to New York, and he was going to take a possession of a large estate, and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile. My, my, my carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. Dude, you're getting a new carriage. Like you, you've got everything that you're going to. And isn't this really when we're thinking straightly and clear-headedly and through the eyes of faith, the reality that we walk in every day? Don't we need to be reminded of that because we so easily forget Christian, we come to God like desperate children with empty hands stretched out to God with nothing to offer and everything to receive, more than we can imagine. Don't underestimate the grace of God. But notice that Paul proceeds to show what Abraham's faith was like in verses 17 to 22. See, Father Abraham's faith, he says that it grew stronger as his body grew weaker. His faith grew stronger as his body grew weaker. There's a certain irony in that. See, Paul supports the universal fatherhood of Abraham in verse 17 by quoting again Genesis 17, 5, where Yahweh is appearing himself before Abraham. And he says this, verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that are not. So in Genesis 17, Yahweh promised to make Abraham the father of many nations, not just Israel. And Abraham believed this promise because he trusted his God who is behind the promise. In other words, it, it wasn't just the promise, it was that. But it was the God who promised him that he ultimately was trusting in. Now, did you catch how quickly Paul pivots from the promise to describing the character of God who promises as the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist? I mean, he immediately jumps to, let me tell you about my God. 
And here's how he describes them in those two ways. Now, in context, God does bring life to the dead by giving Abraham and Sarah a child when they were good as dead. In other words, the bringing life from the dead there, speaking specifically of a barren woman giving child, is something that should not have been able to take place. It's a miracle. In fact, it's interesting. If you look in 2 Samuel 2.6, you'll remember that Hannah was barren, and God gave her Samuel. And in her song in 2 Samuel 2.6, she cries out, the Lord brings death and makes alive. So this, this birth is really kind of a death to life kind of thing, that's foreshadowing, of course, something greater later. But God giving a, bo- uh, a barren woman a baby is giving life to the dead. Uh, he also speaks of God saying he calls into existence the things that do not exist. I, I take this to speak of the way that God made a promise of things to come that have not yet taken place. And there's such certainty about it. In fact, did you notice that the promise that was made to Abraham, that it was in the perfect tense. Some of you are like, I hate English. Like, why'd you do that? We were doing good, and then you brought that in. Let me tell you, sometimes paying attention to these nuances, you, you find beauty. The promise was to Abraham back in Genesis, I have made you the father of many nations. I mean, that, that sounds like he's already completed the action. But he's 99, and he hadn't had a baby yet. See, God's promise sounds as though it's already come to pass, even though it seems to grow less possible with respect to Abraham day by day as he ages, and still he hasn't had an offspring. I think that what Paul wants us to see is that the certainty and the surety of the promises of God. God never writes a check with his mouth that his powerful arm is unable to cash. He is always able to bring about what he tells us he is going to do. And when God makes promises, it's as good as done. That's what that tense shows us. See, Abraham's faith in God's promise to bring many nations from him, we find in verses 18 to 22 that it was growing stronger as his body grew weaker. Look look again there at what he says in verses 18 to 22 of chapter 4. He says this. It says, In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he has been told, so your offspring shall be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew stronger in his faith. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, faith and hope, if you're thinking about the relationship between the two, I'm gonna give an illustration that I'll probably, you know, get corrected on later, but it's kind of like Siamese twins. And what I mean by that is, is that you can't really quite tell where one begins and the other ends sometimes, and they share the same DNA. It's looking to the promises of God, trusting God, taking him in his word. In fact, commentator Tom Schreiner explained it this way, the line between faith and hope blurs so that it's almost indistinguishable. 
See, Paul's highlighting in these verses the future-oriented nature of Abraham's faith. He believed in hope against hope. That means that as he is believing in God and trusting his promises, it flies in the face of what can reasonably be explained from a human standpoint. Abraham's body weakened. His faith did not. He didn't take a blind leap of faith. No, notice that it says that he was considering stuff. He was, he was surveying the land. He was paying attention to his body and his wife's body. You'll notice that he highlights a, a couple of specifics. He considered that he was good as dead at 99 years old. And Sarah, his wife, just turned 89, and she's still barren. So from a physical standpoint, it became more likely that his wife would need to go more to a, a, like a nursing home than to get ready to nurse a baby. Like, it just doesn't make sense. But did you catch that Abraham's faith grew to trust God more as the things of this world provided him less and less ground for God's promises being fulfilled? Like, that's, that's something otherworldly that God's working in his people. The worse his back hurt, the dimmer his eyesight grew, the more he had to look to and trust God with spiritual eyes. The more that he realized, I, I don't have any more tricks in my bag. I can't help God make good on these promises. God's actually going to have to do a miracle to make this thing work. As Adolf Schlater says, Abraham does not believe in spite of his inability. But he believes because of it, for this reason, he relies entirely upon God alone with determined volition. He realizes that in that moment, faith is not how much he can help God bring about the promises that he's made to him. Faith is about trusting God to do what only God can do and that he has nothing empowered to be able to help him with. So Paul's description of Abraham's faith, uh, as you read that, at the very end, especially verses 21 and 22, you might be getting a little bit intimidated. Uh, some, sometimes I, I counsel people who really struggle with assurance of faith, and probably all of us, to some degree, lesser or greater, have struggled with assurance of faith. So you read stuff like, no unbelief made him waver. He grew strong in his faith. He gave glory to God, unlike the humans who failed back in Romans 21 to 23. He was fully convinced that God was able to keep his promise. You, you read those things and you might be thinking to yourself, man, does that mean that Abraham never shook in his faith? Never in any way wavered throughout his life? That he was perfect and sinless throughout? That he has a kind of faith that if I have to have that faith to be counted amongst the people of God, then I'm going to find myself falling woefully short. Some of you might even be terrified when you read these words, and you might think that that means that your faith will not hold you fast like Abraham's faith held him fast. Well, let me just encourage you with a couple of things. First, the Bible doesn't whitewash Abraham's life. So just go read Genesis if you're worried about who Abraham was. The Bible's really clear. Abraham, Abraham was a man who was known for his faith. He was a model of our faith. He also tried to help God out by having a child with Hagar. He also lied one or two times about his wife being his sister to save his neck. You might think, well, that doesn't sound like perfect faith, like a guy that didn't have some growing to do. 
No, I think what we find in the life of Abraham is that actually he was maturing in his faith throughout his lifetime, more and more having to trust in God. Abraham grew and matured in faith as he saw God's faithfulness and his failures. Are you doing that in your life? Are you growing through your failures, through your sins? Are you repenting and turning to God and learning about what faithfulness looks like, not just in spite of your failures, but in your failures? Are you finding God in those moments? That's where God's people meet with him and find him and are refined. God comes and meets us as sinners. And second thing that we learn here just in these short verses is that Paul isn't encouraging Christians to faith in their faith. Does that make sense? Faithing in your faith will lead to you going into despair and doubts on the one hand, or maybe developing a kind of unwarranted pride on the other hand, thinking, my faith is better than everybody else's faith. I never doubt. Maybe you should a little bit. Have you seen your life? Like, wow, you're really being mean to the glory of God. I mean, the heartbeat of this passage isn't the power of Abraham's faith, if you're reading closely, as much as it is the power of Abraham's God. It's not that my faith can do the impossible. It's that my faith is in a God who can do the impossible. So the power of faith is determined by its object. We don't grow in faith by sitting there and and navel-gazing and meditating on our faith. We grow in our faith by looking to and trusting in the God who raises the dead and brings the things into existence that were not by his very word. Now, let me say this. You do want to look at your life. You want to have others help you look at your life. You do want to consider whether or not your faith measures up to biblical faith. But if you're struggling with assurance, there are other things that you should focus on. Let me just encourage you to attack it in, in six quick ways. I'm just going to give you six quick ways you're struggling with assurance. One, read your Bible every day and pray for the Holy Spirit to bring assurance to your heart because of who God is. Faith is a spiritual gift. You need to go to God and pray that the Spirit would give it to you and give you more of it. Second, read Assurance by Greg Gilbert. Great book, talking you through it, giving some text to think about it, to meditate on. Third, consider if there is unconfessed sin in your life. Fourth, maybe you need to eat better, take a nap, and exercise. Just just saying physical things can impact your spiritual life. Fifth, seek to obey Jesus because faithfulness grows faith. You know, is your faith full to God? You don't know how things are going to turn out, but you're obeying him because of who he is? Like he is going to grow you and mature you and your willingness and ability to be able to be faithful to him. And sixth, find a friend to disciple you. And help you see yourself more clearly. We all have blind spots. Don't faith in your faith. Believe in God who is able to keep his promises. Our final point, four, in verses 23 to 25, is really just a question. Are you a child of Abraham? And Paul says in verses 23 to 25 this. But the words, it was counted to him, they were not written for his sake alone. But for Ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. See, Paul says when God counted 
imputed, credited Abraham with righteousness because he believed in him and his promises. That wasn't just for Abraham's sake. Paul says, but it is for ours also, speaking of the Jewish and Gentile Christians in the church in Rome. And if it was true for them, it's true for us. Those verses were for you and for me. See, Abraham, he, he looked for an offspring who would become heir of the world. And that offspring has arrived. He's arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. Today, we are justified by faith and become spiritual children of Abraham when we put our faith in God who literally raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus being delivered up likely is alluding to Isaiah 53, 12, where Isaiah told us that there was a suffering servant that was going to come, and he was going to lay down his life. He says because of their sins, he was delivered up. And later in Romans 8, 32, we find that Paul says, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, Jesus died on the cross to save us from our trespasses and from the just wrath of God. And when God forgives us, he treats us not as enemies, but as children and heirs of the promises of God, which is uh, something that he's going to enumerate later throughout Romans. But also, did you notice that God raised him from the dead for our justification? Now, this is a strange phrase. Paul doesn't say this in other places in this way. This is the only place that he says it in this way. But you'll notice that Paul says that God raised Jesus for our justification. God made us right with him at the cross. And the resurrection, I think what's happening here is he's saying that it verifies publicly that Jesus' sacrifice really did make us right with God. So that if your faith is in Christ, you are a child of Abraham and an heir to all of those promises. You're an heir of the world. So is that you? I think that's what Paul would want his church to ask. Is that you? Are you a, a true son or daughter of Abraham? Let me ask you that this morning. Are you a child of Abraham? Have you, have you put your faith in Christ so that you have peace with God? You're no longer under his wrath like all of humanity is apart from him. Are you an heir to the promises of Abraham? If not, you still face his wrath and judgment. But if you come to God with an open hand, putting your faith in Christ today, he will forgive you of your sin debt. He will credit you with his righteousness. And he will make you an heir to the promises of a future and a hope as a child, not just of Abraham, but of God living with him forever. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus don't leave without talking to me today about putting your faith in Christ. Most important decision you'll ever make. But for the rest of us, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare to sing to this great God. Father, this morning we come before you praising you that you have given us your righteousness in Christ. Father, you made a way where there was no way. You have given us your very son so that we might become heirs of the promises made to Abraham. Father, if there's even one person here this morning, perhaps there are many who do not know your son, Jesus Christ, who have not put their faith in him, 
Lord, I ask that you would break their hearts, that you would help them see how poor and needy they are, and you would help them to see how glorious Jesus is, and I ask that they would reach up to you for grace that only you can give. It's in your name we do pray.